cannot change, they cannot end. And, and so I, I, my, our encouragement, our word for this year is, no matter what's happened in your life previous, God's word is unchangeable, his promises are unchangeable, and they have the power to change your life. And I believe it's gonna be that kind of year. Let me insert really quickly before we keep moving. If you're in junior high and you haven't been dismissed, fifth to eighth grade, you can go out the door and to the right. There's signage and the team can help you. And our Epic Alive is, is starting. I apologize that I forgot to dismiss you today. But you're gonna have lots of fun. So he goes on to say, we who have run for our very lives to God have every reason to grab the promised hope with both hands and never let go. It's an unbreakable spiritual lifeline reaching past all appearances right to the very presence of God. I, I love this. It's an unbreakable spiritual lifetime. Uh, uh, the New King James says it's un God is immutable. He doesn't even have the ability to change. God couldn't change if he wanted to. God couldn't not complete his promises even if he wanted to. Our series, he promised unchangeable words that can change your life. Here's a verse that I've been just meditating on and, and praying about. And in worship today, God even began to speak to me more about it. And, and we're going to pray about it here in just a moment. But here's what Peter wrote to us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. What a God we have and how fortunate we are to have him. How many believe we are fortunate to have a God that we have? This father of our master, Jesus, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for. Look at the person next to you and say, you have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. You see, so often we, we get caught up in uh, in, in Christianity, and it's all about heaven, and I just want to get to heaven, and, and, and God's going to bless me when I get there, and I want to live in eternity with God. And look, we want all of those things, but here's the good news. God wants to bless your life while you're here. He wants to help you while you're here. He wants to give you promises while you're here. The greatest promise we have is the promise of salvation, the promise of a future with God, and, but that's not all of it is. Notice he says, including a future in heaven, but that's not even what Peter's talking about. He's talking about how much you have to live for while you're on this earth. And I love this. And the future starts now. What a great word for the first of our year. Everything that God's spoken into your life, everything that God's promised over you, the future starts now. It's a new year. It's a new day. Uh, Friday night, we were meeting with our pastors and our elders and um, Many of you may know that I have a, an esophageal disease, and I, it caused me some problems in the middle of our meeting, and I just really felt like at that time, I asked the elders to pray for me, and I just felt like this was an old problem that God didn't want me to take into the new year and our new life. And so I'm, I've been standing on that word since Friday night. I got up Saturday and just, just proclaiming over my life, I'm healed, and I'm not taking this problem into my, my new life. Everything starts today, and, and the healing is taking place in my body. And while we were singing that song just a moment ago, healing is here, God just reminded me of that, and he just said, Randon, there are people in this room with old problems that need to end with 2018. 
And we're not going to take them into 2019 with us. How many have an old problem that you need to end today? Lift, lift your hand up real high. Father, I declare right now that every old problem would stay in 2018. It won't be, it won't be a current problem anymore. It will be a past problem because it's behind us. We're conquering it. The devil is defeated in that area. We are standing on your word. Our new, we have everything to live for, and it starts today. You are putting that stuff behind us. Every situation, every hand raised, I declare it in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get up every day. Yeah. I want you to get up every morning to declare whatever that is, that old problem stays in the past. It isn't a current problem. It's a past problem. you got to stay in my past. The, the, the devil is defeated in that area. We have everything to live for. You have everything to live for. When the enemy's trying to speak to you and tell you there's no hope, you have no future, you have everything to live for. What a great promise. Your future starts today. Things are changing today. So many promises in Scripture. Uh, in, in fact, you can go from all the way from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. You can find the promises of God. But I want to talk to you over the next four weeks about four specific promises. Four specific promises. And I'm going to begin with you in kind of an interesting place. And we'll use this as a little bit and start to set up the context today. We will we'll, um, kind of lay a foundation. I'll do a little more teaching today than I might normally do. So uh, some of you like to learn about our culture, about our Judeo-Christian uh, history. I hope you do. I'll, I'll try to teach you a little bit about that today. But we begin in Luke chapter 22. It's in this chapter uh, that Jesus is just about to be arrested, betrayed, and hung on a cross. And he meets with his disciples, and, and here's what he says in uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. The specific time here that's being referred to, and you can read it, I believe it's in verse 7, is that it is the time of the Passover meal, the feast of unleavened bread. Very important feast in Jewish culture, in Hebrew culture. So when the time for the feast came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Verse 15. And Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. The reason that Jesus was eager was because Jesus is the very fulfillment of everything that was being done at the Passover meal. The disciples didn't fully understand this yet because Jesus hadn't gone to the cross. He hadn't laid down his life. He hasn't been resurrected from the grave. But he's like, I'm, I'm eager to get this thing going. Why? Because never again will the Passover meal be the same now that once, I, once the next three days is done, once I'm resurrected from the grave, and then once the Holy Spirit fills your life, never again will it be the same. So I was eager to get to this moment. Verse 16. For I tell you now, that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It's meaning, right? So there's purpose behind the meal. And, it, and Jesus is the fulfillment. Verse 17. Then he took a cup of wine. Now I want you to note. He takes a cup of wine and he th gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. Okay? First cup of wine. Keep going to verse 18. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Verse 19. He took some bread and gave thanks for it. 
Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, most of us in this room at some point in your life, or maybe often, have taken communion. You've read these verses. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, Eat this in remembrance of me. Verse 20. After supper, he took another cup. Now, here's what I want, here's what I want you to stop and notice. Remember a few verses ago, he took a cup and he blessed it. Now in verse 20, he takes another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people in an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. How many cups does Luke say that he drank? Two. So we come for communion, and I'm not suggesting we change this. There's reasons for it, but we come for communion, and how many cups do we normally drink? One. But Luke said, he, he references Jesus drinking two. But here's the actual truth. Jesus didn't drink one and he didn't drink two. He actually drank four specific cups at the Passover meal. Now, Luke doesn't tell us all of this because Luke uh, is writing in a culture that understood what the Passover meal truly is. In our Christian concept, we consider the Passover meal as breaking the bread and drinking the little shot glass that you probably got when you came in, and we call that the Passover meal. That's not the Passover meal. That, you, you might say that's the Lord's Supper. You might say that's communion, but that is not Passover. On this night, Jesus is meeting with his disciples, and he is walking them through the Passover meal as they had done every year prior and as they had done every year of their lives. Why? Because these men, while they were followers of Christ, were good Jews. They were devout Jews. Remember that they called Jesus rabbi. As a, fact, as a matter of fact, you, you remember in just a few verses, you're going to hear where, uh, where, where Jesus says, someone's going to betray me. He who dipped his bread with me is going to betray me. You remember what Judas said? Rabbi, is it I? Jesus was considered a rabbi because his level of understanding and his ability to follow the law of Moses. Jesus followed the law of Moses. So here, one more time, he gathers together on the Passover for this massive feast, and he's walking his disciples through the meal. What is the Passover meal? To, to understand the Passover meal, you have to go all the way back to the book of Exodus. Okay, the book of Exodus. Now, for some of you in the room, you've heard all this. For some of you, you haven't. But I believe there's something for us all to learn as we remember this story. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, and this is, this is God speaking to Moses. Therefore, say to the Israelites. He's about to give him some promises here. The Israelites are trying to decide. They're stuck in slavery to Egypt. And they're trying to decide should they come out and follow Moses or not? Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Verse 7. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. In this we see four promises that God has for us the first of which I want to talk to you about today. Go back to verse 6, and I'll show it to you. In verse 6, notice he says, say to this, I will bring you out 
from under the yoke of the Egyptians. They were in slavery, and the first promise, the first, the first promise that God makes to them is, I'm going to bring you out of slavery. It's a promise to save us. It's a promise of salvation. So, how'd they get there? You'll remember that God had promised the land to Abraham, and then to his son Isaac, and then to his son Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Israel had a son named Joseph, and uh, you may remember the story. His brother sold him into slavery. Long story short, Joseph ends up as the number two guy in Egypt. And God speaks, and Joseph begins to prepare the, the, this, this, the nation of Egypt for a famine. The same famine that hit Egypt hits the land of Canaan, the promised land, where Israel and all of Joseph's family are living. So when the, when the famine hits, all of the Israelites, all of Israel and all of his sons, end up moving to Egypt where Pharaoh, because of Joseph, sets up the Israelites in the land of Goshen and, and gives them everything they need to live. And they begin to thrive in the land of Goshen, which was a part, a specific part of Egypt. The Bible tells us that after they forgot about Joseph and what he had done for them, years later, the people of Israel are multiplying so fast, they're growing so fast, that the Egyptians now realize that if we're not careful, they're going to outnumber us and they'll overthrow us. So their response to this is to enslave the Israelites. They were invited into the land as guests, but they ended up enslaving them. Boy, isn't that what sin does in our life? It entices you to come in. Come on, it'll be wonderful. Come on, just try it. Come on, just a little bit. It, it'll make your life better. But the thing that brings you in ends up enslaving you. So, in Exodus chapter 2, we read, it's been, it's been 400 years that they've been in slavery. 400 years. Put this into context. Um, the first colony in America, Jamestown, was formed, formed in 1607. 1607. That's about, uh, and, the, and then the pilgrims landed in 1620. So right in there is when America was actually being founded, when the pilgrims landed and Jamestown was formed. That was about 400 years ago. So everything you study in American history, pretty much, from, from Jamestown and the pilgrims all the, way through, uh, all the way through, that's how long the Israelites were in slavery. And they prayed to be set free, and they prayed to be let go, and, and they never could get any relief. Here's what Exodus tells us. Are you with me this morning? I, I know we're doing a little teaching today. It's okay. We'll pick it up. Years passed, and the, kingdom of Egypt, uh, the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. They're crying out for help. God's hearing them, but he hasn't done anything about it yet. Boy, that's a frustrating place to be. When you're praying like crazy, and God doesn't seem to be responding. I, I, I want you to be encouraged in this, if, if that's where you are. You're not alone. In fact, it seems to be part of our Christian journey. That at some point, you're going to be praying to God and he's not going to respond. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. Because here's what the Bible says. 
their cries were heard by God. God's hearing your prayers. It may not be time to respond yet. It may not be time to deliver you yet, but it doesn't mean he hasn't heard you. Let's not confuse God's lack of movement in our life with his lack of care about what's going on in our life. Years passed. Uh, excuse me. Uh, verse 24. God heard their groaning, and then here's what he did. He remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The day is coming where God's going to remember his covenant to you. He remembered it. Verse 25. He looked down on the people of Israel, and he knew it was time to act. There's a day coming when God's going to know in your life it's time to act. may not be when you think it should be, but he's going to know when it's time to act. Can you imagine how many times someone tried to stand up and fight back? Were there ever any coups? Were there ever any rebellions? You're being beaten daily. You have no rights. You're enslaved in another land. And yet your God, who called you his people, who gave you his promise, seemed to be doing nothing. It must have been so discouraging so easy to think how miserable our lives are, and yet you remember the slavery of the Egyptians, uh, of the Israelites to, the, to Egypt. But he heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant. He saw the people, and he knew it was time to act. If you feel forgotten, if you feel lost, if you feel enslaved and beaten down and distraught and depressed, God has heard you, and he's remembering his covenant, and I believe that it's time to act. So God sends Moses, and he says, Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. You may remember the story, the old Bible story. He then sends the ten plagues, and he, he, sends the, he turns the water to blood. He then sends frogs and lice and flies and cattle or disease and boils and hail and fire and locusts and darkness and death. But then we get to the tenth plague, and this is the one that caused the children of Israel to be let go. On the night before they left Egypt, here's what God said. God said, the, the angel of death is going to pass over. And if I see the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he's going to pass over your house and go to the next house. But if there's no blood on the doorpost, if you haven't been covered by the blood of the lamb, then your firstborn son and the firstborn of all of your livestock are going to be killed instantaneously. This, is, this seems, you know, in our... Um, American culture, this just seems hard to understand. And yet this is the links at which God was willing to go to deliver his people. So I want, I want, I, this, is, this is the first understanding of how far God was willing to go to get his people out of slavery. Now we know on this side of history that God was willing to go even further because he sent his son Jesus to die for us because he didn't want us to be enslaved to sin any longer. So here's what they had to do. Right at twilight, they were instructed, they were given very specific instructions to take one lamb for each household. It had to be a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb, without blemish. It had to be a male. It had to be one year old. And you were going to have to eat the entire lamb. And if you couldn't eat the entire lamb, you would invite your neighbors over, your friends over, your family over to make sure we could eat the entire thing. Eat the entire lamb. Make sure you take it all in. Don't leave anything out. Boy, I think this is an encouragement to us because, because we tend to stop along the journey of Christianity, of following Jesus, and say, well, that's enough. I'm comfortable right here. And yet God is saying, no, no, I want you to take in the whole thing. I want all the promises for you. I want all the good for you. I want everything that, that I have d designed for you. 
So you would kill the lamb at twilight, and then you would take the blood, and you would put it on the doorpost of your house. You would roast and you would eat it with unleavened bread. Unleavened bread was bland, no ingredients, didn't have any time to rise. And, and it, was a very, it was a very bland thing. And you would drink it with four specific cups of wine. And the blandness of the bread would contrast with the richness of the wine. And here's what God was trying to do. Understand it, in, in Hebrew culture, everything is about symbolism and pictures and, and what God's trying to say. So the blandness of the, of the bread represented that the life of sin at first seemed satisfying, but when you taste the richness of walking with God, you never want to go back. So for seven days, they would celebrate the Passover, but then there was this main meal, and this is what Jesus ate with his disciples. I'm going to run through these very quickly, but this meal was laid out step by step, and they repeated it every year, this, this Passover meal. It has 14 different parts. Can you imagine trying to corral your kids and your nieces and nephew for 14 different parts of one meal? But that's what they did, and it was very, very serious. First thing that they would do, the first part is called sanctification. This is what we're talking about today. When, G when Jesus first lifted the cup and blessed it and drank it, he was drinking the cup of sanctification. This is the first of four cups. It, it, it's, it means holy. It's the Kadesh. It's, it's the cup of holiness or the cup of sanctification or specifically the cup of salvation. So Jesus lifted this cup, and he, he blessed it, and he drank it. Number two thing they would do was washing. They would wash their hands to prepare for their eating. But something interesting to note in the Hebrew culture is they don't say their blessing before their meal. They say it at the end of the meal. And we always pray before we eat, right? But they would say it at the end. So, uh, so they would wash their hands and get ready. Then the third thing they would do is they would take these vegetables. It was usually uh, a parsley dipped in salt water, uh, and it represented the lowly origins of the Jewish people and the tears they shed in slavery. Because when they would take this parsley and they would dip it in salt water and they would shake it off, it would actually look like tears falling. So it was a visual reminder of the tears that they had shed for 400 years while they were in slavery. Number four, they would take one of the matzahs or one of the breads and they would break it. You remember when Jesus took the bread and he broke it? He took matzah and he broke this bread. And then the fifth thing they do is they would tell the story. They'd tell this whole story, same story I'm telling you now, about how Jesus delivered them from Exodus. And the youngest person in the room would always ask these four questions. They called them the ma-nishtana, and that translates why is it different? Why is it different now than it was then? And so they're telling this story to rem remember why it used to be, we used to be in slavery, but now our life has changed. Jesus said, as often as you drink of this, remember it. Remember, he said, he said I was eager to meet this, eat this meal with you. Why? Because I want you to remember why it's different now than it used to be. So when we take communion, we are remembering why our life is different, why we have everything to live for, why his promises are so prevalent in our life, why it's different than it used to be when we were in sin and slavery to sin. You tracking with me? Number six, they would wash their hands again, but this time they would wash their hands and uh, pray a blessing. 
the, the seventh was this blessing that they prayed. It was a blessing over their grain products and the matzah, and then they would eat some more of the bread. Number eight, it's called bitter herbs. Now they would take a bitter vegetable, and, and they would begin to prepare it to eat, and they would create this mixture, and this, this bitter herb, the bitterness of the herb, symbolized slavery and the bitterness of slavery. So they would make this mixture. This mixture reminded them of the bricks, of the mortar they used when they were making bricks. So notice the symbolism in all this. They're trying to remind themselves of what we went through. Then they'd go to number nine. They would take this mixture and they would make a sandwich out of it. They would put it on, on some, some of the bread. They would make a sandwich and they would, they would eat it. Then they would start the meal. All this has happened, and they haven't even really started the meal yet. Now they're going to eat the lamb. It was festive. It was lively. Remember, they're an hour or so into drinking wine at this point. The party's getting good. <laughs> I'm sorry. For those that are non-drinkers, I didn't mean to say that. Number 10, uh, number 11 is called the afikumen. It was, they would take a piece of the matzah and they would prepare it as a dessert, do some special things to it so it tasted a little different than the bland bread earlier. And this was their dessert. And then they would say grace after the meals. This was when they would, when they would bless the food that they had just eaten. And they would pour a third cup of wine and they would recite a prayer, this blessing that they would say, and they would drink it. So here's the third cup of wine. Remember I told you there was four. Now they're drinking throughout, but there were specific cups when they would stop and they would say something or do something and then they would drink. Then they would, pray, they would praise God. They would have several psalms, a blessing. And then one more time they would drink the fourth cup before they closed. And when they closed, and thankfully this is something we don't have to do anymore, their closing was a wish that the Messiah would come within the next year. And they would sing songs hymns, and they would begin to tell stories. This, this is what they did every single year. Jesus did this every year of his life. The disciples did this every year of their life, these 14 steps. And Jesus gathers with them, and he says, I'm so excited to have this meal with you because I, when, when you realize what I've done for you, you're going to realize that I'm the fulfillment of all these promises. And when you receive me, you receive the fulfillment of these promises in your life. Let's move forward, and then we'll, we'll talk about this, this, the first cup. Um, in their slavery, there were three major things that we know about the slavery of the Israelites to Egypt. Egypt. Number one is that they were forced to make bricks as slaves. They were forced to make bricks. They, they built most of the wonders of the world that are in ancient Egypt right now, but they weren't paid or compensated, and they don't even share in the credit. When you wonder how the pyramids were built, understand that it was built on the backs of the Hebrews. Slavery, anytime you are submitted to a dominating influence in your life, anytime it's, it's telling you how you have to live your life, you have to make bricks, you, you feel stuck, you feel trapped, you feel enslaved, and that's what sin wants to do in our life. It wants to enslave us. That's what addiction does in our life. You can't function unless you feed the addiction. And we get enslaved and we get entrapped. That's what sin does to us. The second thing we know about their slavery was that the Egyptians murdered their sons. They threw them all in the, in the Nile River. Pharaoh ordered them to take all the male Hebrew babies 
and throw them into the, into the Nile. Why? Because he was t- trying to destroy their potential. In, in, in the Old Testament, when, when this was happening, it was symbolic of killing their future and killing their potential. You're a slave. Because you're a slave, I want to take away all potential for better things in your life. As long as they were having sons there was a chance that one of them could be raised up to be a deliverer, that one of them could be raised up to be a mighty warrior and deliver them. So I'm going to take away your potential. This is, what's, this is what the enemy wants to do to your life. He comes into your mind and he tells you things like you've always been this way, you've always been addicted, you've always had this problem, and there's no way you'll ever be set free. Even right now, while I'm, I'm telling you you're going to be set free, the enemy is saying, no, you won't. He's talking to someone else. He doesn't know what he's talking about. That's what the enemy does. He's taking away the potential in your life. I say things like God wants to make your old problems past problems and no longer current problems. And then the enemy is speaking right at the same time saying, no, it's always going to be this way. But I'm declaring to you in your life that the, the slavery to sin, the slavery to that old stuff is being broken off and the enemy's voice is being cut off. Without potential, you feel empty, no purpose, no meaning, no future, just just living, just surviving. And then the third thing we know is that uh, Pharaoh required them to collect their own straw. So they're making bricks. And for years, Pharaoh would provide their own straw. But when he got upset with him, he said, no, now you have to go out and you have to make the bricks and collect straw. So he's adding more work to their day. But he said, I'm going to require the same amount of bricks to be made. So you're going to have to work longer hours. You're going to have to work into the night. And I'm going to punish you if you don't bring the same number of bricks in, even though I'm requiring you to do more work. Here's here's the principle. The devil is trying to wear us out. He's trying to exhaust us. He's trying to steal our rest. He's trying to steal our sleep. We, we, we go to sleep, but we don't rest. We go on vacation, but we never rest. We slow down, but we don't rest. We work harder, but we get the same return. We're doing more, but not getting any more out of life. Why? Because that's what the enemy is trying to do. He came to steal and to kill and destroy. And so we've got to say to the devil, you may have tried to steal my freedom, but I'm not giving up. You may have tried to kill my potential, but I'm not dead yet. You may have tried to destroy my life, but I've still got life. I've got everything to live for. You have potential. You have everything to live for. The devil is a liar in your life. And it all begins when they drank this first cup, the cup of sanctification. The promise of salvation. The promise that God wants to save you from slavery. So when I think about these promises, and and we'll go through them over the next few weeks, each one of them represents something that we focus on here at Triumph and why it matters. This promise of salvation is um, it, it's a huge thing in my life, and, it's, and it is my uh, number one and primary focus every Sunday morning in our weekend services, is that I want an opportunity for people to know God, that they would know the salvation that God has promised for us. You know, the truth is, there are lots of ways that people find Jesus in this world. But the number one way still today that people come to know God is through the context of our Sunday morning service. In this room today, some of you came here and you don't know Jesus. I want you to know Jesus today. I'm talking about what he did for us. I'm talking about how he delivered us from slavery. I want you to know God. So when we set up our weekend services, it starts with this in mind. I want as many people as I can to know God. 
I grew up in a very um, different time in a different world. I grew up in, and it was an amazing life that I had, but I didn't know anyone that was sinners. I didn't know how to talk to sinners. I didn't know how to people, uh, uh, have a life or, or have a relationship with people who didn't know God. Cause I didn't know any of them. And so at this point, God, at, at one point in Lindsay and I's ministry, God really began to touch us and he began to, uh, break our hearts for people who don't know God. One day I'll tell you the story. I don't have time today, but there's one specific family that really got a hold of Lindsay and I's heart, and we realized the heart of God is that he might show people his love and they might come to know him. You see, God is all about relationship. Everything in this book is about restoring relationship. It started in Genesis with, with a relationship with no barriers, and that's God's greatest goal is to end up where we have no barriers in our relationship with him. He wants us to know him. You know, the greatest miracle in the world was not a healing. It was not cancer. It was not healing the blind. It was not crossing the Red Sea. It was not raising Lazarus from the grave. The greatest miracle is when a sinner drinks the first cup of promise, when they drink from the cup of sanctification and they receive salvation. This is the greatest purpose that I have in my life. You think about the parables of Jesus, three specific ones, the the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Jesus is talking about lost things. And how much emphasis that our king puts on finding the things that are lost. You may know someone right now. Someone's face might be dropping into your mind. A name might be dropping in your mind. Someone you know that doesn't know God, that needs to know God. That's his heart. He wants to reach people who don't know God. This is what he's trying to do. He wants to reach people who don't know God. Years ago, my son, he's 11 now. He was about two and a half or three and uh, Lindsay and I took our family to the movies. We went to see some kid's movie. And we came out of the movies. We were, we were standing there, and um, I don't know what we were doing. We were just waiting for a minute. And, and Lindsay said, Randon, watch Randy. He's at that age where they run off, you know. And she said, watch Randy. I'm going to run to the restroom really quickly. I'm not paying a lick of attention. I don't watch Randy. I'd like to blame it on her. I can't. It was my fault. She definitely told me to watch Randy, and I definitely did not do it. She comes back from the bathroom. Okay, let's go. Where's Randy? What do you mean? Isn't he with you? No, he's not with me. I specifically said, watch Randy. We look around. Randy's gone. Here we are in this busy movie theater. Randy's gone. He's two and a half, three years old, and he has disappeared. Lindsay loses her mind. She loses her mind. We're looking everywhere. She runs up to the security guard. Help me find my son. Lock the doors. I'm looking everywhere. Next thing I know, this is no joke. She goes back into the kitchen. She's behind the the, the snack bar in the kitchen, yelling at everybody, where's my son? Where's my son? You know, they're making popcorn. Like, what are you doing? She's back there in the kitchen. She goes, he's gone. He's gone. Where is my baby? We're looking everywhere for him. You know what? And all of a sudden, we go over here and we look, and here's Randy. He was playing one of those race car games. He didn't have any money. He was just driving the race car, you know, and those seats are really tall, and he was really short, and you couldn't see him at all in the seat. But there he was. He was fine, but we didn't know that because for a moment there, he was lost. Here's the thing. When Randy was lost, nothing else mattered in the world except finding him. 
Nothing mattered. Where we were going next, what we were eating for dinner, you know, where our car was, what we were going to do next week, nothing mattered except finding my son. Can you, can you imagine if Kennedy had come up to us in that time and been like, Daddy, 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 we're all frantically searching, and she's like, can you buy me an ice cream? If she'd done that, I'd have been like, uh, you know, what is wrong with your mind? It makes no sense that we would be asking for ice cream when our son, our brother, is lost. Let's go find him. Here's what, here's what these parables teach us about the heart of God. And this is what we, we as Christians, the, the found people, can get confused. God has lots of ice cream for me and you. He's got lots of cherry on top for our life. He's got lots of blessings for our life. He's got lots of good things for our life. But if we're not careful, the found can go get so busy enjoying the goodness of God that we lose track that the heart of God is doing everything he can to find those that are lost. And God is searching and he's looking and he's going through your life and he's trying to find your friends and he's trying to find your family and he's trying to save them. But we're going, God, 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 bless me one more time. And God's going, what are you doing? Let's go find the lost. Your cousin is lost. Your friend is lost. Your boss is lost. Your coworker is lost. Quit worrying about all that. Let's go find them and get them into the house of God and get them into the kingdom of God and get them where they know me too. They are lost. My challenge to every believer, I've been saved my entire life. At nine years old, I was filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized, speaking in tongues. I've seen all the miracles and and I've seen it all. And I I, I pray every day. I pray and I I believe what Paul said. You're not going to find many people that pray in tongues more than me. But you know what? At the end of it all, the end of it all if people aren't finding jesus like i find him what am founding what am i doing what am i doing so our our services on sunday morning our weekend services first and foremost it's about it's about the lost being found there are certain things you won't see me do Pastor Renner don't believe in that. No, no, Pastor Renner believes in that. He just doesn't believe in doing it when we're busy trying to find the lost. So this church, our, Lindsay and I, our, our, our ministry starts with this. We want to build a church. We want to build a ministry. We want to build a place where no matter who you are, you feel welcome to come in and find Jesus.
first thing is you've got to make the move. You've got to repent. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is changing your direction and heading a different way. It's doing something different in your life. It's leaving the slavery behind. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, in the Message Bible, he said, leave the corruption and the compromise behind. Leave it for good. Number two, you got to let it go. Egypt's not all that. You got to let it go. Sin is not all that. It seemed fun at first, but man, it's not all it's cracked up to be, and it will enslave you. You got to let it go. You got to surrender your life to God. Let God lead. And then number three, you got to commit your life. It's not just enough to come out. You got to pursue something else. Pursue God. Pursue His purpose for you. I'm no longer a slave to the devil, but I'm a slave to God. I'm living for Him. I'm a slave by choice. My life belongs to Him so much better than my life belonging to this world. Commit my life to Jesus because he wants a relationship with me. Paul wrote to Titus, it wasn't so long ago that we ourselves were stupid and stubborn, dupes of sin, ordered every which way by our glands, going around with a chip on our shoulder, hated and hating back. But when God, our kind and loving Savior God, stepped in, he saved us from all that. It was all his doing. We had nothing to do with it. He gave us a good bath, and we came out of it new people, washed inside and out by the Holy Spirit. Our Savior Jesus poured out new life so generously. God's gift has restored our relationship with Him. And it's given us back our lives. There's more life to come, an eternity of life. You can count on this. God wants relationship. drinking of this cup of sanctification. We're going to take communion together. You should have received communion elements when you came in. If you didn't, would you just slip up your hand and our ushers want to bring you one. We've got buckets everywhere. If you didn't get the communion elements, please, we'll bring you one very quickly. If you have your communion, would you please stand with me as, as we prepare? understanding of what all Jesus did for us. Goodness gracious, if he had stopped at salvation, it would have been enough. We've only talked about the first promise today, the promise of life, the promise of salvation, the promise of sanctification. There's so much more. We're going to take communion together each week. We're going to focus on, as we drink the cup, what Jesus fulfilled in that cup. Today, I'm thankful for his salvation. I'm thankful for what he did for us. I'm thankful for what he did for me. I could be a lot of places this morning. I could have been lost and searching, but I'm found because Jesus found me. I'm found because Jesus went to a cross and gave his life for me to save me. I'm glad that Jesus saved us all. So today, we take the bread Jesus did 2,000 years ago and he said I was eager for you to, to eat this meal because I want you to understand the fulfillment. So as we break this bread today, we thank you for your body, Jesus, that was broken for us. Thank you for what you did for us on that cross. We eat it now in remembrance.
today, Lord, we remember the cup of sanctification, the promise of salvation. That through you, Jesus, you fulfilled everything that happened at the original Passover. That because of the blood of the Lamb in our lives, the angel of death is going to pass over and we are saved. Despite our sins, despite our problems, Lord, you have covered us with your blood and you are saving us. And we thank you for that today, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to know you and to restore relationship with you. So as we drink this cup today, remember your promise of salvation. We drink it now. Let's, let's worship for just one moment before we close. And to worship you I live, to worship you I live. Salvation is 
it, it, it's it's the door, but it's not all that God has for us. So it's the it's the first step, but there's more for you. Next week we're going to talk about the promise of deliverance in your life, the promise of freedom in your life, and what God is, what Jesus has already done for us. So, pastors and elders, prayer partners, if you would make yourselves available, I want to bless you before we go. You're going to have a great week. And you're going to invite someone, bring someone with you next week. May, may God put that heart in you to always be inviting. Guys, if you have my blessing ready. I bless you in the name of the Lord. Be blessed in the city, blessed in the field, blessed going in and blessed going out. May the Lord bless all of your efforts with success. And may you wear his favor as a shield protecting you from every attack of the enemy. Be blessed, blessed, blessed in all that you do. God bless you. We love you. Um, don't forget you can take your prayer guide. Join us for 21 days of prayer. They should be on your, um, your chair. Take one with you. Prayer in the past 21 days. God bless you. I love you. These altars are open. We'll see you at Influence.